Doug, I'm the pastor here at Parkview East, and just want to welcome you. It's good to see all your faces this morning. Glad that you have uh, joined us for worship. If you're new, really want to especially welcome you. There's a table out front. I think maybe Liz mentioned it, and we have some information. We'd love to get to learn and, and know more about you. So we would invite you on your way out just to stop by that table, introduce yourself, and uh, yeah, glad that you're here. And we're walking through the book of Mark together as a people, so I'd invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open those to Mark chapter 11, is where we will be spending our time this morning, Mark chapter 11. We're going to be looking specifically at verses 12 through 25. And so, Mark 11, 12 through 25. If you do not have your Bible, um, Denny's got a bunch in the back, you can just raise your hand up and he can come around and hand one to you. Um, But I would invite you to to pull your, your word out and take a look at it with me. The accounts... Just in terms of sort of prefacing our our message this morning, the accounts that we are looking at are are honestly some of the more difficult accounts in in the Bible that we're going to see, that we have looked at so far. Um, They have long provided numerous challenges for commentators and scholars alike. And this morning we are going to try and make sense of three really seemingly separate stories. Argue that they're really the same story. And it's a story that starts with a fig tree and naturally ends with forgiveness. All right? So it's a little different. It's a little different. And my prayer, my hope is really this morning is that as we read this passage, that you would walk away from here and you would see the beauty and the wonder of Jesus in these words. Awesome stories. Awesome stories. So I'm going to go ahead and read and then, and then I'll pray for us. We'll start off in... Um, Verse 12. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes That what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. 
if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, just for these words this morning. And my heart, my cry, my plea to you right now, Father, is that you, Lord, would make your word and your will absolutely clear to your people. Father, I pray that you would use this word this morning to encourage your saints. Lord, I pray that you would use your word this morning to maybe invite those who do not know you to draw near, Lord, as you draw near to them. Lord, I pray you would use this time to accomplish your purposes, Father. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. One of the things I love to do just to kind of kill time is play basketball. I've always liked to play basketball. When I was in college, went to the University of Iowa, there was this thing that happened at the field house that since has shut down really in the last 10 years. The field house, if you did not know, used to be like one of the top places in the entire country to play pickup basketball. You could walk in there almost any time of the day, and there would be six courts running, six games being played, and there would be two or three teams deep on each court waiting to get next, all right? Love to go there. I would go there on Sundays after church, and I would just play ball. I would not eat anything at all that day, and I would come home after in my dorm, and I would just collapse on the ground because once you win, you just keep playing. And Well, when you, know, you got game and you keep winning, you just keep playing, all right? So what happens. Really, a lot of it has to do with the kind of team you get on. You get there, you don't know anybody, you start saying, you got next, you got next, we need one down here, and you jump on that team and you play with a bunch of strangers. This is an awesome, awesome thing, right? Well, one of the things that I used to do is I would go there and I would try to figure out, I wanted to get in the game that would sustain the rest of the day, the team that would stay on that court. You gotta win if you wanna stay, right? So I would try to find the other best four players to play with, okay? And the way you would do that is you just kind of watch. You could look and see what they're wearing, maybe. It would give you some indication if they could ball or not. And you would try to get on the team. Well, it wasn't long before I realized that there really is an art. There is a, a skill to deciding whose team you're going to be on. A good friend of mine, his name was Graham, and he was ruthless. And I mean ruthless. Me and him, we, we were in the same ministry at the time, and he was a couple years older than me, and, and we would play. He was really, really good. This dude would show up, and he'd have running shoes on. He'd have paint splattered clothes on. Did not look like a hooper at all. And I'd get there, I'd be there a few minutes early, and I would pick my team, and I got, you know, save one spot for Graham. Graham would roll up, and he'd be like, all right, who we got, who we got? And I'd be like, these guys right here. And he's like, no. No, we're not playing with those guys. No. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And he would literally like say, no, I'm sorry. We're not, you're not going to be on our team. And he would go find a couple other guys to get on the team. Like he had no shame. He was about business, all right? It's about business. And see, Graham understood something that I learned. Took me a little bit, a little bit of time to learn, figure out, but tested it. And it's pretty true. A lot of times you walk into a setting like that and all the guys with the right gear are the, usually the ones with no game, zero game whatsoever, right? They would have the greatest shoes. They would have wristbands and headbands. They would have the long shorts. I mean, they, they looked like they could hoop. And Graham knew, no, 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 no. They ain't got no game. That's why they got to put all that gear on, right? To, to fool people so they could get in a game, all right? That was their only hope. If they could at least give the appearance of being a hooper, that was their hope, right? He figured it out. And, you know, it took me some time, but eventually, it's true. It's true. It really is. 
And I don't know, maybe you've been in a position before, a similar position, where you have been had, right? You have bought into a fake Growing up, one of the big things for me was Oakleys, the glasses, the sunglasses. Kids would go on vacation down south, and they would come back with what we call Jokeleys, right? Fake Oakleys. And it would, you know, from a distance, right, they appeared to be the real deal. But as you got closer, you could see that it wasn't really spelled right, and it was falling apart, and it wasn't serving its purpose. It wasn't a nice pair of sunglasses, right? And maybe you've had a similar experience, whether it's a purse a nice purse. I don't know what kind of things we fake people out with where women's attire is concerned. Maybe some jewelry, gold, okay? Your wrist starts to turn green. You've been had, all right? Maybe you can't relate. I don't know. Have you ever been had? The appearance of authenticity, but as you draw close, scratch a little beneath the surface, you begin to see superficial, fake, not the real deal. This is especially devastating when it's applied to matters of eternal significance. Spirituality and faith, devastating. The appearance of authenticity, a little beneath the surface, it's a fraud. This is exactly what our passage is about this morning. With these stories, these three stories, we learn a critical lesson that Jesus confronts superficial spirituality with divine judgment. How does Jesus deal with a fraud? Divine judgment. These stories stand apart from any description really we have of Jesus throughout the New Testament. The attitudes, the actions of Jesus that we find here in Mark 11 are absolutely unlike anything else that we have read so far of our beloved Savior. By all measures, what we just read does not seem to be, on the surface, consistent with the character of Jesus that we have grown to love. Jesus calling a a, a fig tree cursed because it doesn't have any figs. Driving out merchants, potential worshipers of God out of the temple in what appears to be a fit of rage. What is he doing? What is the deal? Why is he acting like this? This text is special to be sure. This is completely so far out of character, seems to be out of character for Jesus, acting in some way, seemingly acting like a spoiled child who didn't get his fig? What is up with that? What's the deal? You know, aside from the mass murder of the, if you guys remember when he cast the demon into the pigs and the pigs hurled off into the, off the cliff and into the sea and drowned to death, aside from that miracle, that act, this is the only destructive, the only other destructive use of power that we see Jesus exercise throughout his life in ministry. The only other example. There is so much going on in this text. If you scratch a little beneath the surface... And really, the most helpful way to see this text is you see these three little stories. You see Jesus in a tree, we'll call this one. Uh, This first story is a story of no fruit, Jesus in the fig tree, right? And, And the best commentary, the best explanation for this story is simply the story that follows. Jesus in the temple, we'll call that one Jesus in false fruit, 
And if you really want to understand what is happening with Jesus in the temple, well, Mark has laid it out in such a way that you just have to keep reading. And the next story will provide the best explanation, the best interpretation of what Jesus was doing in the temple. We'll call this one Jesus and True Fruit. So we, this morning we're going to look at three things. No fruit, false fruit, and true fruit. First one is Jesus and the fig tree, a story of no fruit. This is found in verses 11 through 13. From the end of chapter 8 through chapter 10, Jesus was on the road with his disciples to Jerusalem. And he was using this as a way of teaching the disciples what discipleship was. They're on the way to Jerusalem. Jesus is teaching them about what's waiting for them in Jerusalem. And he's teaching them, impressing on them what genuine, real discipleship looks like. That's the point. On the road, he's showing them, how do you follow me? This is how you follow me. And Jesus, we see, is in pursuit of cultivating real faith. Ultimately, that's what he's after with the disciples. And today, that's what he's after with you. Real, genuine faith. Our story this morning takes place on Monday of the Passion Week. This week, this week would end, we know, with his crucifixion. This would be his last Monday, okay? Week ends with his death. If you're familiar with the story, what happens at the beginning of chapter 11 is that Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem on a road paved with cloaks and palm branches, right? This is the Messiah entering the city of Jerusalem. Crowds would gather around on the road and they would be screaming, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Crowds would welcome this king as he made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. Following this grand entry, Jesus would spend the day in the city of Jerusalem, and then he would head back out of town into the town of Bethany. He would spend the night there in Bethany. This is a town located just a mile and a half east of Jerusalem. And then the next day, we're told in our passage that this morning, Jesus is on his way. His disciples head back into the city, and on their way to the city, they see a tree. He saw a fig tree in the distance. Being hungry, this is morning, so this is probably Jesus thinking a quick way to get a cheap snack, right? There's a fig tree. I see leaves. Let's go to the fig tree. My stomach is growling, right? This is a quick way for a snack. This particular tree was in full leaf, and from a distance, the tree gave the appearance of fruit. From a distance, all signs said this tree was a fruit-bearing tree. But upon further inspection... After drawing close to the tree, Jesus sees it is completely void of fruit. There's no fruit on this tree. All that exists instead are leaves. This tree has the sign of life, but no fruit. So Jesus speaks a harsh word, a direct word, a destructive word. We see it in verse 14, look at it, verse 14, and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Curses the tree so that no one would ever be fooled like Jesus was fooled again. Was he fooled? Was Jesus fooled? At first glance on the surface, you might be tempted to think, what on earth are you doing messing around with a fig tree? 
right? You've got one week to live and you're talking to a tree. Why are you talking to a tree, Jesus? One week to live. In a matter of days, Jesus would be hanging on a different tree. Monday, he's cursing a fig tree. What are you doing? Why are you doing this? He spent the last couple of days with his disciples, preparing his disciples for what he was waiting. If you remember, so do not be fooled into thinking, well, maybe Jesus doesn't realize what's coming because he just spent the last several chapters preparing his disciples for his crucifixion. He knows entering Jerusalem will be his death. He understands that he will enter Jerusalem and he will not leave Jerusalem. Jesus knows what's going to happen. He knows that the, the cry of the crowd will go from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him crucify him. He is fully aware, make no mistake. So what in the world is he doing messing around with a barren fig tree, talking to trees? What is up with that? Why is he doing that? You think about the ways he could be using his power? Is there some sort of maybe fruit wound from his childhood that's just kind of surfacing right now, right? Maybe he had a bad interaction with the fig, maybe. Is that what's going on here? Is he simply acting like a spoiled child? None of you could relate to that, right? Didn't get his way. Curse, you fig tree. Is that what he's doing? William Barclay says, the story does not seem worthy of Jesus. This story, he says, does not seem worthy of Jesus. Jesus seems like he would be above this. Lots of misunderstanding about what's going on here. Another commentator says, it is a tale of miraculous power wasted in the service of ill temper. Is, is this just a bad day for Jesus? Some, lots of scholars, lots of people have been tripped up by this passage. Is it just a bad day? Is that what's going on? On the surface, I confess, it's strange. It is strange. Seems completely out of character with his life, with his ministry. On the surface, it seems overly harsh, a little overreacting, maybe. Now, I want to explain what's happening. It's not that, just to be sure. It's not that. Now, before, as I kind of get into just the explanation, I want to be very clear about something. In, in the event I have unintentionally fooled you, I am not an avid horticulturalist, okay? <laughs> I am not. I like to eat fruit. I can do that. Vegetables on occasion. Get down with some veggies. I'm really good at buying them from the store. We have a small garden that has mostly weeds usually, okay? This is not necessarily my, you know, my area, my domain, okay? Not an avid horticulturalist. And where figs are concerned, I mean, beyond fig newtons, <laughs> I don't really have a lot to offer, okay? I don't really have a lot to offer. They're a delightful snack indeed. Um, but that's the extent of my fig knowledge, okay? But if you were to read a little bit about the culture and the day and what fig trees were and how they grew, I think it would bring a little bit of light. It does bring quite a bit of light to our text this morning. The phrase that perhaps makes all of this even more puzzling is the fact that verse 13, Jesus says, or it's, we're told that it was not the season for figs. 
It wasn't even the season for figs. So imagine walking out the doors right now. There's, well, maybe last week or the week before, and there's snow on the ground, and it's cold. You have to wear a coat. And seeing an apple tree in the distance, imagine somebody saying, hey, let's go get an apple. Right? See the apple tree? You're thinking, well, then we got to go to Hy-Vee because there ain't going to be no fruit on that tree. Right? That seems to even confuse it further. Seems to suggest that Jesus should not have expected to find fruit on the tree. That's what it seems to suggest. But again, with no knowledge of fig season in the ancient Near East, with just a little bit of knowledge of fig season in the ancient Near East, this, this would be difficult to piece together. See, throughout the year, there's three times in the year where fig trees bear figs. Three times. The next fruit, you know, we're about mid-March, early April time frame. The next fruit-bearing season would be late May, early June, before any figs would start to bear on these trees. By this time, however, trees would have started to produce full leaves. Leaves would start to grow on the trees, and, and, and they would start to produce small nodules, small little unripened bits of fruit, unripened fruit. In order to make sense of the text, you have to distinguish the difference between ripe figs and unripened figs. See, it would have been a normal, natural practice in the ancient Near East to see a leaf, a fig tree with leaves, and to maybe a peasant or a traveler, somebody who maybe doesn't have a lot of money or food, would approach the tree knowing that there's not going to be any figs on the tree, but hoping that maybe there'll be some small, small buds that are packed with goodness and could give you a little bit of energy on your way. Unripened goodness buds, maybe, was a hope, Jesus. It would be one that would be fair for him to have. But instead, when Jesus gets to the tree, he does not find any ripe figs. He wouldn't expect to have found ripe figs. Neither does he find any of those buds. Instead, what Jesus encounters is nothing but leaves. Nothing but leaves. It was completely unfruitful. So he casts a curse on the tree. And the disciples were told, hear it. That should tip us off that Jesus is not just abusing his power like a spoiled child. He is teaching a lesson. I'm told in Mark that really one thing that the book of Mark is kind of famous for is that there's really only two places in the book of Mark where, where Jesus teaches a parable. A lot of the parables that we learn are in the other Gospels. The emphasis in Mark is on the miraculous power of Jesus, right? And so you see a, a, a parable in chapter 4, and you will see a parable next week in chapter 12. But guess what? This is a parable. What we just read, what we're looking at this morning, is a different type of parable. It's a visual parable. He's giving his disciples a visual parable parable. Jesus cursing the fig tree wasn't just Jesus exercising divine power. It was Jesus teaching a prophetic lesson. Jesus is strategic in setting up what is about to happen. By making a simple point, Israel, like this barren fig tree, despite its appearance of religious activity and spirituality, has no fruit. 
And Jesus confronts that reality with divine judgment, judges it. Throughout the Old Testament, the fig tree was utilized as a symbol representing Israel. Jeremiah 8, 12, when I would gather them, declares the Lord as Jeremiah walks out. I don't know if he just heard his name being called there. Jeremiah 8, 12. <laughs> when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. And Nahum Chapter 9, all our fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. See, in the Old Testament, the fig tree was a symbol that represented God's people, the nation of Israel. Jesus took the symbol a step further. He wasn't comparing Israel to simply a fig tree. He was comparing Israel, God's chosen people, to a fruitless, barren fig tree. This, to be sure, was an act of divine judgment, not on a tree. This wasn't an act of judgment on a tree. This was an act of judgment on a people, not just any people, on God's chosen people. Like this particular fig tree from a distance, Israel appeared to be healthy appeared to be spiritually vibrant nation. With the commotion of the city caused by Passover, by, with the grandeur of the temple and the pomp and circumstance that surrounded it, the rituals, the rule-keeping, from a distance, if you were to gaze on the outside and look, the nation of Israel, you might think they had something going on. But Jesus is saying, uh-uh. Scratch a little beneath the surface just a little bit, and you will see that this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts couldn't be further from me. The fig tree was meant to provide the disciples with a significant spiritual lesson. It was good for them in their day, and it's equally as good and relevant for us in our day today. Though we may give the outward appearance of spiritual health, spiritual vibrancy, does not mean that we are bearing fruit that's pleasing to God. Do not get your church activity mixed up with authentic spirituality. Do not get your patriotism confused with genuine, real faith. Do not get your moralistic, legalistic way of life twisted and have that thinking, you got it going on with God. Jesus is after real, true fruit, real faith. Don't get it twisted. The best explanation, actually, of this story, like I mentioned before, is the story that follows. The story of Jesus in the temple. This is a story of false fruit. One story of Jesus seemingly acting out of character is simply followed by another story of Jesus, again, seemingly acting out of character. In order to understand what's happening here in the temple, you really have to understand what the temple is, the significance of the temple in Jesus' day. As he would cast this curse on the fig tree, Jesus continues on his way towards the city of Jerusalem. 
Would it be long before the magnificent sight of the Temple Mount would come into view? The construction on this is the second temple. The construction on this temple began by Herod about 20 B.C. and would come to completion in the middle of the first century. The temple is almost complete at the time of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. And during Herod's oversight, the temple was actually enlarged to cover some 35 acres, about four football fields long by about three football fields wide. This was a massive structure. It was covered with gold and marble pillars and walls. It was completely gorgeous and unmatched in the ancient world. Because specifically of the Passover this time of year, this particular part of the year, the temple would have been popping so to speak, right? People would have been coming in from all parts of the world to descend on Jerusalem, Jews from different parts of the ancient Near East descending on Jerusalem to take part in the Passover festivities. But more important than simply a massive structure, a beautiful building is what the temple represented to Israel. For the Jew, the temple meant everything. It was placed at the very center of what it meant to be Jewish. For it was the dwelling place of God's presence. His presence was there in the temple. To draw near to the temple was in effect to draw near to God himself. All of Israel's history and identity was centered on and around this glorious structure. A structure that had been built, destroyed, and was just rebuilt. Think about it. I think it was destroyed in 587 B.C. So, so for 400 years there was no temple. Right? The identity of a people was, was in shambles, was in ruins. 400 years of when is the temple going to get rebuilt, and now finally it's back and it's better than ever. Right? A glorious, glorious structure. Upon entering the temple gates, Jesus would have first come across what is known as the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. That's where our scene takes place this morning. The court of the Gentiles was the outermost court of the temple, and it was designed to serve as a means of introducing, introducing the non-Jewish world to Yahweh. Right? So if you were a non-Jew, if you were a Gentile, you could participate in what was happening in the courts of the Gentiles, but you couldn't go further into the temple. This is where debate, philosophy, and teaching would take place. The ways and the wonder, the design is that the ways and the wonder of God himself would be put on display in this court. So that as, as Gentiles, as the nations would come to the temple, they would experience God. And they would say, your God is the true and mighty God. This is the God I want to serve. That's what the purpose of those courts were. But that's not what Jesus found when he entered them. It's not at all what he found. Instead, the court of the Gentiles was filled with noise and activity, flooded with people and merchants selling and trading, exploiting one another, changing money so they could participate in the religious sacrificial system. Livestock were all throughout the, the courts of the Gentiles. To top it off, people were using the sacred ground, this sacred ground, as a shortcut from one part of the city to the next, completely desecrating what was sacred, sacred, sacred building. You know, uh, Roland Martin recently was talking about how um, what, he had this line about how people um, were often, would be often after, maybe he's talking about evangelists today or, you know, some spiritual leaders today about how they're after the prophet and not the prophetic. 
making a distinction, right? The, and that's what's happening in the court of the Gentiles, right? People are approaching the temple looking not for the prophetic, but looking for a prophet. That's what's happening. If you were a Jew, you could move beyond the chaos of the court of worship to draw near to God. Or sorry, beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of worship to draw near to God. Maybe a little bit of silence in there. But not if you were a Gentile. If you were a Gentile entering the temple, was it, the court of the Gentiles was as far as you could go. The, the sad truth is that Gentiles, maybe even who were hungry for God's presence, would leave just as hungry because nobody was feeding them in the courts. What God had designed to be a house of prayer for the nations had turned into a means of economic exploitation. The Father's house, a house intended to bless the nations, prevented the nations from worshiping themselves. How Jesus responds to this unimaginable scene would become one of the most awe-inspiring scenes in all of Scripture. Jesus sees what's happening, and he isn't going. He isn't having it. As soon as he enters the, tape, the, the court of the Gentiles, Jesus begins to flip tables over. I never really noticed it before, but he's even flipping seats over. Now, I'm guessing there's people sitting in those seats, all right? And he, get out of here, drives them out of the temple, Throwing temples, pigeons flying, cows, what is going on, right? And while he's doing it, what's he doing? He's teaching, all right? Maybe we could try that next week. <laughs> New style of teaching. Start flipping tables over and get out of here, Pickard, you know? See how long, you know, attendance, if I wanted to whittle it down to just a few, might be an effective way of doing it, right? Jesus isn't having it, he's driving them out. It's amazing to me what's so beautiful about this is that when Jesus directs the 12 disciples on a different mountain after the resurrection to reach the, nation, the nations with the message of his kingdom, he completely reverses the direction of Jewish expectations. Rather than the Gentile world that would, the nations coming to the periphery of the temple, drawing close to God from afar, into God's presence, Jesus radically reverses. Radically reverses. He initiates a centrifugal mission which starts at the center and sends people to the nations. Totally different direction. Gone are the days of the world coming to the holy city of God, populated by the people of God to have an encounter with God. And here, under the reign of Jesus God's people are to go out calling men and women from the world to repentance. What a wonderful reminder of how we are to operate. See, the church still hasn't quite figured this one out. Not all churches, but some churches, right? I think some churches think the way to reach the world outside there is just to get them in here. Well, look what we got, people. This is not that impressive, <laughs> all right? You, listen, let me just put it for you like this. We don't even have a sign. Welcome to Parkview East. We don't have a sign out there that says Parkview East. You are entering not just, let me just, I was thinking about this this morning. It's not just that you're coming in the backside of a strip mall, right? That's, that's, that's bad enough. That's bad enough. We have a school. 
on the back side of the strip mall, and you're coming in the back door of the school that's on the back side of the strip mall. All right? If we expect, it's messed up, right? It's messed up. It's okay. It's okay. You know why it's okay? Because that's not our strategy for growth. That's not our strategy for reaching the nations. That's not our strategy for reaching the lost. It's to just get them in this beat-up warehouse. It's dodgeballs flying around half the time, right? That's not our strategy. Thank God that's not our strategy. Our strategy is that you, the church, would be mobilized to go out there. To rub shoulders with nurses in a hospital room and tell them about, look at what God has done for me. To rub elbows with a colleague or a coworker and say, you know what? This is the hope and the healing power that I've experienced because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To tell neighbors, to maybe to show neighbors love by raking their leaves and shoveling their driveway, building bridges wherever you can between the lost and Jesus. That's the strategy. Right? This Jesus in the temple was not a fit of rage. This was not Jesus losing self-control, no discipline. No, this was intentional. We're told the, the following, the triumphal entry in verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, right? So go back to verse 11, and what you see is Jesus comes into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. He spends the day in the city. You know what Jesus does? Goes into the temple. He goes into the temple. He entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went back out to Bethany with the 12. This, my friends, was calculated. This was planned. The night before, Jesus is throwing stuff around. The night before, he casts people out of the court of the Gentiles. Jesus sees what's happening, leaves. And I can just imagine thinking, how can I really, how can I really make my point? As the whole night thinks it through, fig tree, temple, makes a pretty awesome point. The series of actions by Jesus was completely calculated, completely orchestrated. He saw the drift that had set in. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew that upon doing this, there would be no turning back. This is the action we see in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes, much like when he did the fig tree, Mark notes that the disciples heard it. Here he's making a point that when he does this, the chief priests and the scribes, they too heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus knows that once he does this, he ain't getting out of Jerusalem. That's the truth. He knows it. It's not happening. But his face is set like flint. He knows what his mission is, what he came to earth to accomplish, and this is the week that it's happening, people. This is the week it's happening. The final story, verses 19 through 25. I'll try to make this one a little quicker. This is a story of faith, ultimately a story of real, authentic fruit. By comparing the fruitless fig tree and the fruitless temple, Jesus is making a remarkable point. In his day, a truly revolutionary claim. The magnificent temple... This spectacular temple in all its grandeur will have the exact same fate as the barren fig tree, as the fruitless fig tree. The, the judgment that comes on the fig tree for not bearing fruit will also come to the temple for the exact same 
reason. Jesus confronts the superficial spirituality, the corrupt show that was taking place in the temple with divine judgment. But what's more important for us today is what he does in place of the temple. Jesus' actions in the court of the Gentiles did not signify necessarily, I think the Bible, where it has, if yours is like mine, it has a, a, a heading above there that says Jesus cleanses the temple, and I think that's helpful and good, but, but really, it's more than just the cleansing of the temple. It's the closing of the temple. It is the conclusion of the temple, the complete removal of the temple from the center of life for the people of God. Remember, that's the position the temple had. If you were a person of God in that day, the temple, your life was centered on the temple. Jesus says, not anymore. He arrives in Jerusalem, makes his presence known as the Messiah. His arrival signals an entirely new stage in God's redemptive plan. Jesus, where once the temple stood in the center of God's people's life, now stands Jesus and Jesus alone. That's what this whole text ultimately is about, that Jesus is inserting himself into the center of life for a people of faith. This is the dissolution of the temple. Jesus is the new center. And from this center and only from this center comes true genuine worship. From this center comes true access to God, true revelation, true assurance. From this center comes favor and significance. This center and this center alone. Real, genuine faith. This is exactly how Jesus directs Peter when later that evening they pass by, they leave the temple and they, they head out that evening we learn in verse 19 and they pass by the fig tree. The disciples see the effect of this curse in just a matter of 24 hours. This tree is withered even down to its roots. It is a dead tree. Probably just good for firewood at this point. In verse 21 and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The tree is completely void of life. Not only is it fruitless, it is dead. It's over. And Jesus' response, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Jesus has just demonstrated two crucial points for the disciples. First is the power of his word. Right? For the past three years, he's been showing his disciple action after action, miracle after miracle. Jesus' word has power, power to heal, power to restore. The, the blind can see, the lame can walk. Jesus' word has a tremendous amount of power. Here, maybe for the first time, the disciples see that Jesus' word has power to judge as well. And the next point I think he makes is that the position he would assume among God's people is different. With the dissolution of the temple, Jesus has thrust himself into the center of believer's life. He commands his disciples, have faith in God. Flee from vain attempts and practices that lead ultimately to superficial spirituality. Have faith in God. Reorient. Center your life on me. That's what true faith looks like. Your life centered on Jesus. And the implications of that are awesome. 
we read the next couple of verses, what those implications are. If your life is centered around Jesus, if he is the foundation of your faith, the center of your life, prayer. Look what he says in verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. The, the implications of a life centered around Jesus, one, you are a person who prays. You recognize your need and your dependence on Jesus. The point is simple. The life of true faith centered on Jesus will be a life of deep dependence on God expressed through prayer. Recognizing his power and our ability is our way of life. Jesus is asserting that what is humanly impossible becomes possible through prayer. This verse has been abused, unfortunately. It's been hijacked by many in sort of a, a name it and claim it theology. Maybe the prosperity gospel is one place that we see it lived out. And any attempt to justify that thinking that, well, you can just say it, and if you have enough faith, it will happen, really is not understanding this verse in its proper context. It's abusing. It's, be, it's stripping the verse from the context. Martin Luther says that to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. It is who we are as a people. John Murray says the life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic ascent. It must have the passion and warmth of love and communion because communion with God is the crown, the apex of true religion. What is impossible with man becomes possible with God. When your life is centered on Jesus. This is the story of our salvation. Our salvation is not possible apart from God, right? We are a people who don't have any way of explaining our existence apart from him. He is our center. And if your life is centered on him, you will be a person of prayer. I would invite you just this morning to examine your prayer life. For me, this is one particular conviction that I had walking away with this text is my life, I want nothing more than it to be centered on Jesus. How is that reflected in my prayer life? Is it? And the next thing is forgiveness. Verse 25, and, and whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. In verse 25, Jesus exhorts his disciples to be a people who forgive. This is, just, this is not just simply an afterthought. Throwing a little forgiveness in there, yeah, we're good. No, it's not what's happening. Jesus is, remember, he's contrasting the fruitless, superficial faith with genuine faith in God. A life of faith. If you're here this morning and Jesus is your, is your king and your life is centered around him, your life begins with forgiveness and it yields forgiveness. That's the fruit it produces is forgiveness, right? Superficial spirituality may have people coming into church looking like they got it together, but the minute somebody crosses them, they hold a grudge and they are not quick and ready to extend forgiveness. That's the definition of superficial spirituality. When you have received much from God, you love that, you enjoy it, but you hold it to yourself and you don't extend it to those around you. A true life of faith is quick 
and ready to receive much from God, be it forgiveness, be it finances, be it health, be it your house, your family, your time. Give it to those around you. That's the flow, right? We're a conduit for God's grace and mercy. Matthew 5, 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Jesus takes forgiveness seriously, so seriously that he gave up his life so that you can have it, so that I can have it. Forgiveness and the life of a believer is a big, big deal. And the good news is we have plenty of opportunity to practice it, right? Some, some maybe more than others, right? My wife is an expert forgiver, right? Because I'm a bonehead half the time. And, you know, there's a parable that I say, I've heard it once at camp, and I've just, it's a great parable. It's very true. Wherever there is people, there is poop. There is poop. I mean, there's bathrooms here for a reason, right? It's a fact. And wherever you have people, you will have sin. And there will be constant opportunity to extend and to receive forgiveness. This is our prayer for us as a people. That we would be a people whose lives are centered on Jesus. And, and this morning I would just invite you and ask you that simple question. What is your life centered on? Is it centered on Jesus? There can be some really good things that can compete for that center. Right? It could be family, it could be a spouse, it could be a career, it could be an ability, an achievement, it could be money, lots of things that want to be in the center of your life. Is your life centered on Jesus? It's a simple question. A good way to examine that, prayer and forgiveness. How are you doing there? Are you a person of prayer? Are you ready to extend forgiveness? That's who we should be. Jesus is beautiful, he is amazing, and there is nothing like him that put at the center of your life can yield the fruit like Jesus yields for us. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for just this passage this morning, Lord. Thank you for um, just the reality, Lord, that you and you alone should be placed at the center of our life. Lord, I pray that you would give your people strength, that you would give us all just courage to keep you there and to not drift from that center, Lord, but to live on it. Lord, I, be, I pray that we would be a people who are quick to extend your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness to those around us, your justice, Lord, and that we would not hold back. We love you and we ask these things in your name. Amen.